Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, it's Owen Jones here. Welcome to the podcast. Now we have got a cracking interview with Noam Chomsky for you to listen to. I should say he's on really, really great form. Firstly though, just a little housekeeping. So we've already launched as a video channel, but now we're expanding to conquer the world of audio as well. So the aim of this podcast is very straightforward. We want to offer an alternative to the right-wing media. We want to take on injustice, speak truth to power, offer some optimism in dark times, not least by showing the alternatives to how things are currently run, but also give a megaphone to the voiceless. And I should also say we are going to have a bit of a laugh as well because we certainly need it. So we've got this absolute ton of interviews, discussions, documentaries, you name it. But we want to expand and offer even more content. So anything you donate via the supporter function in the podcast description is hugely appreciated. Or you can go to patreon.com forward slash ownjones84 and become a regular supporter. That way you have a say over who we speak to, what we talk about, what issues we focus on. Whatever you do, though, please like the show on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast and share this show with your mates, your family, workmates, whoever. So, I spoke to Noam Chomsky, a bit of an idol of mine. He's a towering intellectual over many, many decades, as I'm sure you all know. And we spoke about a lot. We spoke about neoliberalism, why Trump is the worst criminal in human history. That's his own words. Now, listen on and you'll find out why he says that. The climate emergency, the biggie, uh, whether Trumpism will outlast Trump and whether Palestine is ever going to be free. Also, is there a world beyond capitalism? So I hope you enjoy this one. I've got a sneaking suspicion you are. But also, please do check out our many other interviews. Uh, we, so I'll, I'll kick off with uh, just some basic questions. I mean, firstly, just to put it in... A kind of more it's something I know you've written about you've you've long written about and something I think is particularly interesting and it helps understand I think the political tumult we've lived through which is the crisis of living standards uh in the United States and also in Britain Britain's gone through the the longest squeeze in living standards since the Napoleonic War the worst squeeze uh for workers uh of any OECD country the industrialized countries and the United States as you've written about median male income is pretty similar to where it was in the 1970s. How would you explain that phenomenon? Pretty simple. But uh, we'll go back to 1980, 81. Uh, we got some instructions from Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, Milton Friedman, speaking for strong, powerful forces in the society behind them. The instructions were very straight. Uh, government is the problem, not the solution. Decisions have to be moved away from government, which is partially responsive to the general population, to the hands of unaccountable private 
tyrannies, the corporate sector, no accountability to the public. Uh, there is no society, just individuals trying to uh, make it for themselves somehow in the facing the ravages of the marketplace. That's apart from the rich and powerful who are guaranteed uh, substantial government subsidies and support. For them, government is the solution. Uh, then uh, what's the uh, responsibility and goal of these, uh, of the corporate sector that's uh, now in the decision-making position? Milton Friedman, guru of economic guru of the, of the movement, wrote a very influential article right at the time, in which he said the responsibility of a corporation is solely self-enrichment, has no responsibilities to uh, the workforce, the, uh, the community, true, the, the right of incorporating is a great gift from the community, but you don't have to pay anything back, just enrich yourself. So just to make sure that there's no defense against this, uh, Reagan and Thatcher immediately opened their terms by moving to destroy the labor movement, the one source of defense against uh, attack and bitter class war. So put all this together. Decisions are in the hands of the corporate sector. There's no society, no people to kind of can't associate to defend yourselves, no labor movement, the new master, the old masters, but now given new authority, have only the duty of self-enrichment. Does it take a genius to figure out what's going to happen? Well, we now have 40 years of experience in what happened. Uh, put some numbers on it. The prestigious Rand Corporation in the United States just did a study of uh, the transfer of wealth from the working class and the middle class in their statistics. That means the lower 90% in income in the population. The transfer of wealth from them to the very top, not the top 10%, actually the top fraction of 10%. Their estimate is $47 trillion over 40 years. Vast underestimate. Uh, Reagan opened the spigots in all sorts of other ways uh, prior to the Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal regime. Uh, tax havens, shell companies were illegal. Uh, the Treasury Department enforced the law. This was all opened up then come tens of trillions of dollars of more money to the uh, private sector that's running the show. Uh, it goes on in many ways. Uh, for the general public, it means stagnation, decline, obviously decline in the functioning of democracy. That's an immediate consequence of uh, concentration of power for the top 0.1% of the population. It's been a bonanza. Uh, their share of wealth in the United States has doubled from 
10% to 20% uh, of total wealth. Uh, for most of the population, it's a matter of trying to get by from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, the, uh, the benefits have declined. The health system, which was never great, has declined in Britain, which once had the highest rated health system in the world. There's been a major effort by the political class to convert it into the worst system in the developed world, namely the privatized US system with double the costs of uh, other OECD countries and generally worse outcomes. Well, this has been going on for 40 years. That's uh, not very surprising when you look at the principles uh, led to uh, disaffection, uh, anger, uh, resentment, uh, contempt for political institutions, which is quite justified, very fertile terrain for demagogues of the Trump variety. You have your own examples who can put themselves forth as uh, your savior, somebody who really cares about you, gonna save you from the attack on you by elites who have contempt for you. And meanwhile, stabbing you in the back at every opportunity. That's the world we're living in. How much would you actually blame responsibility to the policies of successive democratic establishments, specifically the Clinton, the Clinton administration, the Obama administration, for the rise of Trump, and I suppose what we could broadly, loosely describe as Trumpism? Very high responsibility. In the United States, the Democrats essentially abandoned any pretense of concern for the working class. Uh, by the 1970s. Now, the last gasp was uh, the uh, Humphrey Hawkins uh, Full Employment Act 1978. Carter didn't veto it, but he watered it down so that it had no teeth, just voluntary commitment. Uh, Clinton greatly expanded the neoliberal assault. Uh, he uh, had large responsibility for the particular form of neoliberal globalization that was instituted. It's a form of international uh, integration in which uh, uh, decisions are made by bankers in New York and Chicago about who's going to live, who's going to die, who's going to work, uh, enormous protection extraordinary protections for private power. That's why in the United States, uh, drug prices are totally out of sight. That comes from the virtual monopoly pricing rights granted to the pharmaceutical corporations and the uh, so-called free trade agreements, which have nothing to do with free trade and very little to do with trade altogether mostly investor rights agreements uh, for the workforce results were there actually were at the time say, the say nafta was passed 1994 that's uh, clinton uh, the 
labor movement had serious proposals for an alternative uh, conception of NAFTA, one which they argued, I think very plausibly, would lead to a high wage, high growth economy instead of the low growth, low wage economy planned by the Clinton administration. Uh, they were backed by the Congress's research organization, the Office of Technology Assessment, independently gave a rather similar analysis. Uh, both were completely ignored, totally. Uh, Congress uh, saved itself the embarrassment of having information by later disbanding the Office of a Technology Assessment. So you don't have to be annoyed by uh, awareness of uh, unpleasant facts. Uh, well, the effect of this was very straight. Uh, actions by employers to undermine unions greatly increased. Uh, if you want to stop an organizing drive in a, a factory, just put up signs saying uh, shifting, shifting to Mexico. No intention of doing it, but that's enough to undercut the organizing. Now, these actions are illegal, but it doesn't make any difference when you have a criminal state that's not going to enforce the law. Narchi was an important study done under NAFTA rules investigating the effect of Clinton's uh, version of NAFTA on labor organizing. I've forgotten the exact numbers, but I think it probably doubled the uh, illegal strike breaking that was going on. Another very serious blow against the labor movement um, showed up in many other ways as well. Uh, so Clinton very substantially uh, carried forward the uh, uh, the destructive programs of the uh, initiators of the neoliberal assault, and it continued later. Uh, yes, that let's go to Obama came into office with uh, enormous popular support, had a huge army of young activists dedicated to working for him. Now that was disbanded immediately. We don't need you anymore. We have this nice guy in the White House. He'll take care of everything, so go home. Now he did take care of everything. And within two years, when he had both the Senate and the House uh, run by his party leaders, uh, he managed to completely betray the workforce and the poor, much of the middle class. The most extreme example was uh, TARP. The uh, Bush Congress had passed, it was right in the, in the middle of the financial crisis that was caused by the housing collapse uh, when Obama came in. There was a congressionally uh, legislated relief measure, uh, uh, a bailout measure, had two components. One part of it was to bail out the perpetrators of the crisis, the banks who'd been involved in predatory lending practices, subprime mortgages, complex uh, financial uh, manipulations to obscure who owned what. A lot of that advanced by the Clinton administration and their 
a massive uh, deregulation of the financial industry. So one part of the congressional legislation was let's bail out the perpetrators, those who caused the crisis. There was another part. Let's offer some support to the victims, people whose homes were foreclosed, lost their possessions, lost their jobs. Let's do something for them. Well, guess which part of the legislation was implemented? Mm. Not very difficult to guess. Mm -hmm. uh, bitter anger on the part of working people who were sold out, poor who were sold out, uh, was sharply attacked by the Inspector General of the Treasury Department, Neil Borofsky, wrote a book and articles denouncing this, but it happened. And uh, within two years, by 2010, uh, Obama had lost his, uh, uh, his popular base of working class and middle class support, not surprisingly. And so it continued. Nice rhetoric, but uh, pleasant words, uh, elites like them, uh, but nothing for the general population. So it helps lay the basis for the Trump disaster. And the worst parts of the Trump administration are barely discussed. Take a look at the uh, extravaganza, the electoral extravaganza, uh, the conventions, the debates, the coverage. Uh, there are two huge crimes of the Trump administration, which may destroy organized human life on earth. Uh, one of them got a little bit of mention, the Trump's race to try to destroy uh, the environment that sustains life as quickly as possible, opening up massive new areas for fossil fuel extraction, uh, destroying the regulatory apparatus that somewhat mitigates the effect and protects the population from severe pollution and so on. In fact, right now, while we're talking, they're in a mad race to undermine what's left of the regulatory apparatus in a manner which will make it very hard to restore. Let's try to do as much damage as possible. That's racing to disaster. The other element of the Trump program, which gets almost no mention, is his uh, military programs. First, one part of it is to dismantle the arms control regime, which has offered some limited protection against the threat of terminal nuclear war. Uh, INF treaty eliminated Open Skies Treaty eliminated, delaying the New START uh, negotiations on frivolous grounds. It's probably too late to negotiate them by now. It's the end of the arms control regime. The other half is massive increase in the military budget and a new strategic posture. It was announced very clearly in 2018. Uh, Jim Mattis then proposed it. He was then defense secretary. Uh, the idea was to shift away from uh, 
the so-called global war on terror, the famous endless wars, let's shift away from that small stuff, actually not shift away, just shift more extensive bombing, uh, uh, support for uh, uh, massive atrocities like the Saudi attack on uh, Yemen and so on. So increase all that, but change it to preparation for a war in which the United States will be able to defeat simultaneously the other two great powers, Russia and China. So shift everything to developing a weapon system, strategic posture for an eventual war with uh, China and Russia. Total madness. I mean, any confrontation with China or Russia's termination of the species. But we have to shift attention to that, maximize development of weaponry, which makes that more threatening and more likely provocative military actions on Russian borders, on now sending the Navy into the South China Sea, dangerous area, which obviously requires negotiation and diplomacy. China's done totally unacceptable things there, but sending the Pacific fleet into it, into the area is not the way to solve the problem. Uh, that's the second part of the Trump legacy. That one sticks. Biden has that national security strategy. The Democrats just recently, once again, supported a bloated, huge military budget aimed to implement this strategy. These are the two main legacies of Trump. If the world survives them, it's almost a miracle. Which is why you've called Donald Trump the worst criminal in human history. Yeah, I think that's very obvious. You try to think of anyone in human history, Hitler, Attila the Hun, take your choice, who was dedicated to destroying the prospects of human life on earth as quickly as possible. That's not an exaggeration. That's a description of Trump's policies, not hidden, very open. So find somebody else who tried to do that. I can't think of anyone. In terms of Trumpism, if we can call it that, I mean, how would we define it? Was this simply, I mean, he objectively a racist demagogue, but unlike a traditional far right, he didn't have this grand ideological worldview. I mean, to what extent is Trumpism continuity almost? I mean, after the civil rights movement, Republicans would use racially codified language like welfare queen, so-called dog whistles, which could be heard by those who knew what they were listening for. And Trump was just saying it out loud explicitly. I mean, or was this Trumpism a fundamental rupture, uh, a fundamental break away from the, the standard course of an American republic, however flawed and however dangerous previous presidents might have been? Well, in this domain, there was a major shift uh, pretty much under Nixon, Nixon. It's called Nixon's famous Southern strategy. Uh, after Democrats support, the Democratic Party had been a very uneasy coalition. Uh, one part of it was Roosevelt-style progressive New Dealers. Another part was Southern Democrats, bitter racists, 
still fighting the civil war, uh, still advocating something not very different from slavery, open racism. That was the second part of the democratic coalition. And you saw it in the New Deal. Uh, it was necessary for New Deal legislation to satisfy the Southern Democrats. They're a very powerful bloc because they, uh, the senators keep getting reelected. So by seniority, they run the major committees and so on. Uh, so uh, Social Security, for example, uh, had to exclude the professions which were mostly uh, Afro-American. Agricultural workers, domestic workers, excluded from Social Security. Uh, take, say, federal housing. In order to pass any federal housing uh, legislation for help and decent housing for poor and working people, it was necessary to, ins to in insist on strict racist principles. It would be basically whites only. So in the 1950s, when there was a post-war building boom, a lot of federal money going into developing uh, housing, suburban housing, uh, blacks were excluded. This was very important. Wealth in the United States is mainly uh, uh, your house and possessions. Uh, black workers at that time were, for the first time, able to get decent jobs in you know, auto industry and so on, but they couldn't get housing. Now, these laws lasted until the late 60s. Uh, well, that coalition broke up as soon as the Democrats began supporting mild civil rights leg legislation. And then the Republicans understood that. Uh, the Nixon strategy was to peel away the Southern Democrats, let's make them Republicans, uh, by just you know, not openly saying, let's institute slavery, but in various not so subtle ways, saying we're with you on racism and white supremacy. Uh, wasn't deeply hidden. When Reagan came in, it was almost open. Uh, you may recall that his uh, open, he opened his campaign in uh, a county in Mississippi, in Neshoba County, Mississippi, Philadelphia, Mississippi, place that's totally unknown except for one thing. The civil rights workers were murdered there. Not a very subtle indication of what the campaign is going to be like. And it continued. The welfare queen uh, stories that Reagan liked to manufacture, you know, the rich black woman driving in her chauffeured limousine to the um, social security, to the, uh, uh, you know, to the welfare offices to pick up your hard-earned money. That was a staple of the Reagan rhetoric. He was incidentally an extreme racist. He was the last figure, political figure, uh, to support uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa. Even after Margaret Thatcher pulled away, Reagan was still supporting it to the very end. And for him, there was no anti-apartheid struggle. It was just a, a bunch of tribes uh, fighting each other. One tribe was the whites, uh, one was uh, the Zulu, one was somebody else, but 
no big problem. Now that was Reagan. Uh, his, uh, uh, and it, it goes on from there. Uh, Trump just picked it up and turned it into a monstrosity. I mean, the the background was al already there before Trump. He has his genius has been to tap uh, poisonous currents that are barely below the surface in American society to bring them forward to be their champion. That's a legacy that's going to be very hard to overcome. Shows up in many other ways. Now let's take, uh, you take the, um, the Republicans understand that they cannot run, cannot possibly run for office on their actual programs. You can't run for office saying, I'm uh, slavishly committed to the super rich and the corporate sector, and I want to screw you in every possible way, so vote for me. Uh, somehow that doesn't work. Mm. So things have to shift to what are called cultural issues. White supremacy is one of them, uh, barely hidden. Uh, others too. It takes, say, abortion. By the uh, mid-70s, late-70s, the Republicans had become totally committed to opposition to abortion. Why? You go back 10 years earlier, they were all pro-choice. Okay. The uh, Reagan, when he was governor of uh, California in the 1960s, passed probably the strongest uh, uh, laws uh, authorizing abortion rights. Same with George H.W. Bush, the first Bush, the statesman, and the rest of them. What happened? Uh, Republican strategist Paul Weyrich realized that if the Republicans pretended, stress pretended, to be anti-abortion, they could pick up the huge evangelical vote, that's 25% of the population, and the Northern Catholic vote. So they switched on a dime. Now they're militantly anti-abortion. Uh, gun rights is the same. They don't care one way or another about gun rights, but it's a way of uh, turning the Second Amendment into holy writ that was done by a disgraceful Supreme Court uh, legislation uh, uh, a couple of uh, DC versus Holder a couple of years ago. Uh, that's another electoral claim. Uh, Trump doesn't make a speech ever without emphasizing your Second Amendment rights, mm -hmm. uh, your right to run around with a bunch of assault rifles. Well, that's a way to try. All of these are ways to try to keep uh, a popular base under control while at the, and pretending to be working for them, while at the same time you're stabbing them in the back. Take a look at the Trump McConnell uh, legislative programs. Not very much, but everything that's there is a major gift to the very rich and the corporate sector, stabbing poor and working people in the back. Their major legis legislative achievement is the tax scam 2017. It was done in the usual fashion when you pass a massive bill reducing the tax burden on the very rich in the corporate sector. 
and the Bush did the same thing in 2001. First couple of years, you put a, put in a little palliative, you slightly reduce taxation for the general public, but it's designed so that that disappears. And over a couple of years, it turns out that working people are actually paying a higher taxes than they did before. Meanwhile, the corporate tax it goes way down. Uh, taxes on the very rich decline sharply. Meanwhile, at the same time, all kinds of devices are developed to permit tax evasion, uh, things like tax havens and so on, which were open. So that's the main legislative achievement. Stick it to people in the neck while you claim you're defending and protecting them against the hated elites who look down on them and demean them, which is correct, looks at them as deplorables. That's the Democrats who've become the party of the uh, professional, uh, the, the professional classes, the uh, uh, cultural centers, the, and of course, Wall Street, mm. it's the Democrats. So yes, they do look down on those uh, rural yokels who are white supremacists and Christians and evangelicals. So Trump has a talking point, but the game is keep them controlled by the speeches about how I adore you and I protect you. At the same time, try to do everything possible to undermine them and uh, diminish the limited rights they have. And of course, overwhelming everything is the race to the abyss. Uh, by far more important than anything else. At stake is whether organized human life can survive. Now, this generation will make that decision. Can't overlook that. And it's an astonishing fact that these two major programs, not just of Trump, but he sharply escalated them, are almost missing from debate and discussion. On the issue of foreign policy, now clearly Trump was no dove. He escalated the drone strikes, uh, civilian death toll increased in Afghanistan. Um, but do you think it's fair to say that some critics of Trump, including amongst the Democrats, their belief that he wasn't hawkish enough, and Trump partly because he probably wasn't bright enough to keep certain truth to himself, said, I'm not saying the military's in love with me, the soldiers are, the top people in the Pentagon probably aren't because they want want to do nothing but fight wars so that all of those wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. So bearing, bearing that in mind, do you fear, given the history of the Democrats, they, of course, in terms of the Vietnam War, in terms of the drone strikes under Obama, do you worry under a Biden presidency, there could be a more hawkish foreign policy and what that could mean for conflict with China, with Russia? That's, there's nothing positive to say about the democratic foreign policy establishment. It is, as you say, uh, hawkish, uh, dedicated to ensuring US military supremacy over the whole world. Uh, it is going to inherit 
the national security strategy initiated by the Trump administration under Mattis, supposedly the, the adult in the room before he was kicked out. This is very significant and the Democrats are not opposing it. They should be. As I said, they just voted for the huge military budget just a couple of days ago. Uh, but that's now in their hands. Are they going to keep it? Are they going to enhance it? If they do, it's impossible to calculate the consequences. The likelihood of total disaster is sharply raised. I mean, it is insane to have a national security policy designed to fight and win wars against China and Russia. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I mean, it's so totally senseless that it's you can't even find words to describe it. There's no way for such wars to be controlled, whatever they're working out in some think tank. It's insane. Uh, the Democrats have not opposed it. Whether they'll pursue it, I don't know. Uh, the Trump administration is pulling out the stops to try to provoke some kind of major conflict in the Middle East with Iran. A couple of days ago, sending a flight of B-52s from their U.S. bases uh, to the borders of Iran. Pointless act except provocation. Let's see if we can elicit from the Iranians some kind of response, which will be a pretext to the enjoyable uh, possibility of a, a missile attack on uh, nuclear facilities or whatever they may have in mind, to which the Iranians might respond. They have the missile capacity to attack the uh, center of uh, global oil production in northeast Saudi Arabia, basically at their borders, could do that. They gave a signal a couple of years ago showing, yes, we can do that. Where this could go, no one knows. Uh, I think the Republican Democrats would probably pull back from that. Uh, the... Uh, we should bear in mind how utterly absurd this situation is with regard to Iran. It's another thing that isn't discussed, but right on the surface. I mean, you know, the, 
Europe did want to continue with the JCPOA, the, uh, negoti- the, uh, the joint agreement on uh, uh, nuclear uh, activities in Iran. And Trump wants to tore it apart. Uh, we don't know whether Biden will go back to it. But in a certain way, it's kind of beside the point. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first question is, what is the threat of Iran? Actually, if you look at American intelligence, they tell you the threat of Iran is deterrence. It might develop a deterrent strategy, which would make it impossible for the countries that want to rampage freely in the region to do so. There are two of them, the United States and Israel. It's Iranian uh, strategic strategic position. What about nuclear weapons? What are they for? Well, according to American intelligence, they would, if they're developing them, it would be part of their deterrence strategy. Who's opposed to deterrence? Well, you know the answer. But even this is beside the point. Let's grant, for the sake of argument, that Iranian that Iran is secretly pursuing a nuclear weapons policy, and that this that's very it's a great threat. So yeah, let's say that's true. What do you do about it? Well, there's one very simple solution: institute a nuclear weapons free zone, in fact, a WMD free zone in the region, with intensive inspections which can work. They worked during the JCPOA, as even American intelligence concedes. The International Atomic Energy Commission concedes, no problem. So what's to block it? Certainly not the Arab states. They've been calling for it for 25 years. Obviously not Iran, which has been vigorously demanding that such a system be set up in the Middle East. Not the Global South, G77, about 130 countries, most of the world's population vigorously calling for it. Europe, kind of quiet, but certainly not opposed. So why doesn't it happen? Well, every time it comes up in an international setting, the United States vetoes it. Obama, in 2015, vetoed it at the MPT review sessions. Uh, subsequent uh, various meetings, conferences, the U.S. blocks it. Why? Not a secret. The U.S. does not want Israeli nuclear weapons and, in general, weapons of mass destruction to be inspected. In fact, the United States does not even recognize officially that Israel has nuclear weapons. There's a good reason for that, too. American law, Symington Amendment, other provisions raise the question, serious question, whether U.S. economic and military aid to Israel is even legal under American law because it's granted to a country that's developing nuclear weapons outside the framework of international agreements, barred by U.S. law. Neither Republicans nor Democrats want to open that door. Uh, The political class doesn't want to open it, doesn't discuss it. You have some discussion in the arms control literature to try to find something in the mainstream. Here's a perfectly 
simple way to end what's called the greatest threat to world peace, uh, the alleged uh, Iranian threat. Here's a way to end it, okay? Can't talk about it, can't discuss it. Uh, we have to race towards possible war. Meanwhile, imposing brutal sanctions on Iran, which are torturing and destroying the country, all under the pretense that we have to pretend, pre prevent them from developing nuclear weapons, when a simple way of doing it is right in hand mm -hmm. and cannot be discussed. Okay. Well, I would hope that the Democrats might be amenable to some popular pressure on this issue, if the popular pressure can develop, which is of course a crucial matter. If things aren't discussed, it's very hard to develop. Not impossible, incidentally. You mentioned the Vietnam War protests before, but we should remember how they developed. It took years before the media would give any minimal support, anything but bitter attacks against Vietnam War protests. I mean, I, I got involved in efforts to try to oppose the Vietnam War in the early days of the Kennedy administration, when Kennedy began to sharply escalate the war. I could barely, I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, probably the most liberal place in the country. He could barely get four people together to talk about it. It was almost impossible. I mean, as late as 1966, we couldn't have a public meeting opposing the war on the one of the, the Boston Commons, basically Hyde Park, where all political activity takes place. Couldn't have it be broken up by, uh, with, by violence with the support of the liberal press. Mm -hmm. 1966, finally had a meeting in a church that was attacked with the support of the press. By then, South Vietnam was virtually destroyed. Finally, a year or two later, you did begin to get a substantial anti-war meeting, but it did develop with no support from the institutions, none, not until the very end and very little then. So I think it could be done on these kinds of issues too, has been for a long time. Um, in terms of the US left, I mean, Bernie Sanders's campaign in 2016 revitalized the left, particularly attracting support from younger Americans. And we've seen the rise of the so-called squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Ilan Omar, a new also influx now of progressives on the left like uh, Cory Bush. How powerful do you think the US left will be under a Biden administration? And generally, how much do you think the Democrats have been pushed to the left in any coherent way? What hopes do you have under a Biden presidency of any genuinely progressive measures compared to, say, the Obama administration? Well, there, there are hopes. I'm pretty sure that the various, there's no organized left, but the various segments of the left will not make the mistake that they did when Obama was elected. Uh, here's this nice guy, let's put our faith in him and let's go home and leave him free to betray everything we stand for. 
which is what happened. So I at least hope that they won't make that mistake. And in fact, there are signs uh, that they won't. There has been direct engagement of significant parts of the activist left in sometimes under the Sanders umbrella, sometimes otherwise, and trying to press the uh, Biden campaign somewhat towards the progressive side. So take the most important issue, uh, heating of the environment, global boiling of the environment. Uh, the uh, activists of the Sunrise Movement, a young movement of young activists supported by several of the congressional representatives who got into office on the Sanders wave, primarily uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they did succeed, and it's a major success, in putting some kind of Green New Deal on the legislative agenda. Bitterly attacked by everyone, but at least it moved there, also with the support of a long time, a fairly progressive Democratic senator from Massachusetts, Ed Markey, who's has been pretty strong on environmental issues for a long time. Well, can I go further? The Biden-Harris campaign program, if you looked at it a couple of months ago, was not wonderful, but it was not too bad. Maybe one of the best of any major country in the world on paper. Something pretty strange happened. We don't know the details, but we know the facts. Now, right through August, if you looked on the uh, web page for the Democratic Party, which I was doing constantly, because constantly giving talks and want to know what the latest, what their latest stand was, uh, uh, you looked th through August, you uh, uh, typed in uh, Democratic Party camp. Uh, climate program, you got the Biden-Harris program. The last time I tried that was August 22nd. A couple of days later, I tried it again, it had disappeared. It wasn't on the web page. What you had instead was uh, how to donate to the Democratic Party. Well, I don't know the internal workings of the party management, but I think it's fair to guess that they probably just took it off and put in the DNC, Democratic National Committee, donor-oriented, Wall Street-oriented uh, uh, climate program. Again, it's not terrible. It's not, you know, it's probably still the best that's ever come out of a U.S. Uh, 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 party program, but nowhere near enough. That's going to be a battle. We saw it very strikingly right at the time of the election. Uh, one of the, the election, incidentally, was a total disaster for the Democrats all the way down the line. It's kind of astonishing that with what's happened, the Democrats succeeded in losing everywhere except the presidency, and that was a vote against Trump. But everywhere else, they lost. Senate, House, state legislatures, all the way down the line, which has a lot of significance for the future. 
One of the places where they lost and surprised many people was in South Texas, right near the border, uh, oil producing area, mostly Mexican American, hadn't voted for a Republican for a century since Warren Harding, swung towards Trump. Some counties, Trump actually won. There's a lot of second guessing about what happened there. Uh, one of the fairly plausible explanations is that the people living there, what they heard from the Democrats is, we want to destroy your lives, your communities, your jobs. We want to take that all that away from you because some pointy-headed liberals uh, in the Northeast claim there's a climate crisis. That's what they heard, okay? And in fact, a lot of this was blamed on Biden because he made a terrible gaffe in the second, in the last uh, presidential debate. He was very sharply criticized for this terrible oversight. Uh, right at the end of the debate, he made a mild statement saying, maybe we ought to think about trying to preserve the possibility of uh, human society on earth. Not his words exactly. The words were, had the same meaning. His words were, we have to begin to think about a transition to a, a non-fossil fuel economy. Means the same thing. He was very sharply attacked for that. How could he make such a stupid comment, you know? And he backed off from it and tried to say, I didn't really mean it and so on. Well, one of the claims is that that uh, gaffe helped him lose Southern Texas. The oil areas, also the fracking areas in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. Well, what should the Democrats have done? Mm -hmm. if they were a party committed to the welfare of the population and the world. They shouldn't have called that a gaffe. Mm -hmm. They should have gone to those places, go to South Texas, go to the communities, tell them, look, here's the facts of the matter. The facts of the matter is, are we are going to get off an oil-based economy mm -hmm. or else we're finished, okay? You, your children, your grandchildren are done for unless we move quickly towards eliminating fossil fuels. But this is beneficial to you. You can get better jobs, more jobs in renewable energy, creating better lives for yourselves, better communities, better work. It's all possible. Here's the way to do it spell it out and it's correct can be done but if all you hear is they're trying to take away our jobs and destroy our communities what do you think is going to happen mm -hmm. well that's the democratic party actually if you look closely there were uh, basically latino commune areas like not far from where i live in arizona where there had been a lot of latino uh, organizing local organizing, no support from the Democratic Party. They don't care about it. But a lot of activists, local organizing, and that swung Arizona to the Democratic side. It's not a progressive state. So we, 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 take, we take efforts at it, 
make efforts, yes, can be achieved. Not if you just say, uh, there are a bunch of, uh, we don't care about them. They have to, they're in our pocket. We don't worry about them. We don't have anything to say to them. We have to make sure that the donors like us. Mm-hmm. That's the Democratic National Committee. The, the Clinton, Clintonite Democrats, basically. Uh, the analog to new labor in Britain. On Trumpism, I mean, what in, what prospects do you think there are of a a more viable, if you like, or a more effective candidate who takes up the mantle of authoritarian right-wing populism, far more effective than Trump, who could actually become a genuine autocrat who poses a an actual material danger to democracy? And, and what to what extent do you think that is the trajectory of, I mean, if we look at Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, Orban in Hungary, Hungary's not a democracy anymore. I mean, I'd be interested as well, your thoughts, Britain, obviously the when this comes out, we won't know if we've got the hardest possible Brexit or no deal whatsoever, the Boris Johnson phenomenon. So how much do you think in America that will outlive and find maybe a better, more effective, more dangerous candidate? And to what extent do you think you worry this is the direction that Western democracy generally is headed? Oh, it's very serious. One of the, um, it's very hard to find much uh, of a rational strategy in the chaos of the Trump administration. But there was a, there does emerge a fairly rational geostrategic uh, uh, framework. Uh, the idea is to construct a reactionary international of the most reactionary states in the world, like the ones you've mentioned, Bolsonaro's Brazil, Modi's India, Orban's Hungary, in the Middle East, crucial place, the uh, Gulf dictatorships, most reactionary states in the world, uh, Israel moved so far to the right, you can barely detect it, it's part of this, crucial part of this, Al-Sisi's Egyptian dictatorship, probably the worst in Egypt's tortured history, bring them all together. In fact, these famous Abraham Accords that are taking place now, they're just part of that. Uh, There have been tacit uh, relations, commercial others, between Israel and the Arab states as Israel has drifted very far to the right. Uh, They've been in place for a long time. Uh, Israel-Morocco, it's been virtually open. So let's bring them to the front, sort of formalize them and integrate them with the Modi's India, destroying Indian secular democracy, crushing Kashmir, uh, others who you've mentioned, weld them all together into a reactionary international run by the White House, uh, its directive, and that will be a base for American power. Now that's been taking shape during the Trump years. Uh, it's a serious danger. For one thing, it's not clear that the Democrats will do anything about it. Maybe not as extreme, certainly. Nothing like Trump in the White House. Uh, but the main structure of it may not change much. But we have to remember something else. That Trump isn't going away. He's following what liberals ridicule, but is in fact a very successful strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, This strategy of uh, 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 
running uh, law challenges in the courts, every one of which is struck down with prejudice and with ridicule. Makes it fun for liberals to make fun of, but it fires up his base. Every time he loses a court case, strengthens his constituency. The deep state is trying to destroy our savior. Look how far the deep state extends, even goes as far as the judiciary, maybe as far as the Supreme Court. Uh, Fox News is now considered a sellout because they aren't Mm -hmm. totally manic on this matter. He's building up a very solid constituency among Trump voters. Virtually none agree that Biden won the election, a few percent. And they're very solid, heavily armed, dedicated, uh, ready to fight for their leader. Trump understands this. He's a canny politician, not not a fool, doing a great job in mobilizing this. Chances are very strong that he'll set up some kind of alternative government, call it a shadow government if you like, so he'll probably call it the valid government, maybe in Mar-a-Lago or somewhere. He's got the Senate in his pocket. McConnell has a long record of ensuring that the country is ungovernable if it's not in his hands. That's what he did through the Obama years very successfully. He'll do it in the Biden years. So he'll be an eager collaborator. Uh, They try to make things as difficult as possible for the whole country. Make the there'll be plenty of at at the very best there would be very hard problems for Biden to deal with after the catastrophic background that they're coming into power. And so let's make it worse. Let's make the, the pandemic worse. Make everything worse. Make it ungovernable. There'll be serious errors. We'll blame them on the Democrats. We'll come roaring back in 2002 and 2004. It's not a stupid strategy. Could work. And if it works, I think we're basically finished. Um, Before I ask my final question, because I know how busy you are at the moment, um, Israel and the Palestinian people, to what extent do you think the struggle for a two-state solution, for example, a viable independent Palestinian state is now impossible, that instead there should be a struggle for a single state with equal rights for Jews and the Palestinian people? Or do you think, I mean, what what prospects for Palestinian liberation uh, and an, an independent Palestinian state, if and, not under the Democrats? Well, first we should be clear about what the alternatives are. Almost the entire discussion of this issue on all sides is exactly the way you presented it. One one option is two states. The other option is one state with some kind of civil rights struggle. Two problems with that. The second option is not an option. Israel is never going to accept uh, a state in which Jews are a minority, or will soon be a minority. They'll never accept that. Second problem is that there's a third option, 
the one that is actually being pursued moment by moment. Uh, read uh, this morning's edition of Haaretz. There's a detailed discussion of the latest proposals of the uh, Highway Administration. And that sounds innocuous until you start looking at it. The new proposals, they've been developing a huge infrastructure program in the West Bank, sort of integrating it into Israel. Now they're moving forward with formal proposals to integrate the planning of the West Bank highway system into the Israeli and Golan Heights system. Single plan designed to ensure that if you're living in a subsidized villa in deep in the West Bank uh, and you want to get to work in Tel Aviv without having a traffic jam, you can go on a super highway uh, where you won't see any Palestinians and you'll be there in a short time. Let's meld it together in a single country. That is not a one state solution. That's a greater Israel solution. It's been going on before our eyes for 50 years, step after step, another big step announced this morning. The idea is to take the areas of the West Bank that are of value to Israel, but omit, leave out the areas of Palestinian population concentration. So this new highway, this expanded highway system goes near Nablus, but not into Nablus. Israel doesn't want to incorporate uh, Nablus, big Palestinian population, into the greater Israel they're constructing. They want to make sure that the so-called demographic problem doesn't arise. Demographic problem means too many non-Jews in a state which is, according to the Supreme Court, the sovereign state of the Jewish people. That's before the nationality law. It's the sovereign state of the Jewish people, uh, not the Palestinians. So let's build that step by step, integrate, integrate it together. We take what we want, greatly expanded Jerusalem, uh, towns to the east of Jerusalem, Maled Dumim, developed mostly Germany during the Clinton years. Uh, bring that in. There's a connection between them called E1 which the US and European pressure has blocked Israel from developing it. Read the Haaretz article this morning. They're showing how Israel's building roads right around it to have the same effect as the connection, but without incurring the opposition of the international community, which can pretend it doesn't see it, which is the, the way they've been acting all along. So let's take what we want piece by piece. Same with the uh, this connection once it's established fully, essentially bisects the habitable part of the West Bank. Another one further to the north in uh, uh, Kadumim, uh, uh, Ariel, uh, uh, just you know, the, what's left for the Palestinians will be the major uh, population concentrations like Nablus. But then lots of villages scattered around, maybe by now, probably close to a couple hundred of them, small enclaves surrounded by checkpoints so that if a Palestinian farmer wants to get it to his olive groves, 
assuming they haven't just been burned down by settlers. He has to go through a, an Israeli checkpoint where the soldiers may or may not decide to let him go through. Uh, okay. In other words, make life unlivable for the Palestinians. Uh, take what you want. Jerusalem's about five times as large as it ever was, bringing in Arab villages, the so-called seam between the annexation wall and Israel, it's already integrated. Jordan Valley, population's been mostly kicked out on one or another pretext. Take that, that's about a third of the Arab land in the West Bank. Now, pretty soon you have everything you want, all integrated, very few Palestinians. That's what's been developing before our eyes. That is the alternative to a two-state settlement, not one state. That's not an alternative. Uh, the, uh, uh, now, the question is, of these two alternatives, is there an opportunity for a two-state development, uh, uh, some form of two-state uh, uh, system to develop? I think so. I don't think that game is over depends very much on U.S. policy. And uh, if you take a look, close look at the United States, you can see a basis for U.S. policy changing. And if U.S. policy changed at all, Israel has to go along. The reason is in the 1970s, Israel made a fateful decision. It was under the labor governments at the time, made a fateful decision to choose expansion over security. Very explicit choices. 1970s, there were clear options for a two-state settlement on the internationally recognized border, slightly, you know, modifications. It was a ceasefire line, so straighten it out and so on. Minor and mutual modifications was the term used. Uh, two-state settlement with guarantees for the right of each state to exist in peace and security within secure and recognized borders. I'm quoting from the wording of a 1976 Security Council resolution supported by the major Arab states, uh, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, uh, bitterly opposed by Israel Prime Minister Rabin harshly condemned it, said we're never going to tolerate anything like that, vetoed by the United States, one of a series of such opportunities where Israel did make the clear, the clear decision that expansion was more significant to them than security, integration into the region, peaceful relations. Well, the effect of that is one effect, which was obvious at the time, is it's going to drive Israel very far to the right, which of course happened. Now, the other consequence is it drives Israel into the U.S. pocket. Israel now relies on the United States for survival. That's the choice that was made. You can see it developing in many ways. That means a lot depends on whether U.S. policy changes. Can it? Just take a look at U.S. At attitudes in the United States very important. Up until about 15 or 20 years ago, Israel's base of support was the liberal community. It's my own personal experience. If I wanted to give 
talks on Israel-Palestine at a university, I had to have police protection because of the violent reaction. Uh, it's all changed. Mm. And now liberal opinion has sharply shifted. In many ways, more supportive of Palestinian rights. Mm. Support for Israel shifted to the far right, just as Israel itself has. So the base for support for Israel is uh, evangelical Christians, uh, hyper-nationalists, uh, elements connected to the military and security industries. That's the base of support. That could be the basis for a change in policy. Uh, it's slow. Take a look at other movements in the past, it's slow. But it could happen. And if there's even, a, like, for example, on things like I just mentioned, the arguable illegality of all US military and economic aid to Israel. And that's something that a lot of people in the United States could resonate to if they knew about it. Mm -hmm. All of these things could develop. If there's even a hint that they're developing, Israeli policy will change. They're far too dependent on the United States. In fact, if you look over the past record, every US president since since uh, the Ronald Reagan, even earlier. But since Reagan, every US president has made demands on Israel, which they strongly opposed, but immediately had to accept. The first exception to this is Barack Obama. No demands. He asked for nothing, just give them what they want. Mm -hmm. uh, he's considered hostile to Israel, but that's because Israel shifted so far to the right that unless you're voting for Netanyahu, you're, you're a leftist, you know. But uh, Obama was the first American president to make no demands on Israel. But if there are demands, they have to obey, just as they did in every other case. It's no more extreme. Well, could this lead to a change? I think it could. Uh, what about the settlers? They have two choices. One choice is to leave their subsidized homes, subsidized villas in the West Bank, get into the lorries that will be provided to them and go to a subsidized home within Israel. And the other option is stay there and become citizens of a Palestinian state. These are not impossible. Mm -hmm. Greater things have happened. I think something on that line is still within the range of possibility. And the only likely alternative to it is just further imposition of the Greater Israel Project, which has been developing for 50 years. And as I said, it's an important announcement this morning of how it's going forward. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, uh... The late political theorist Mark Fisher wrote a book, I knew Mark Fisher, um, he wrote a book called Capitalist Realism, in which he summed up, this was several years ago now, but summed up the spirit of the age. And he summed it up by quoting, this is often attributed to Slavoj Žižek or Frederick Jameson, um, that, it, that this, in this period it became easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. This was the era of there is no alternative, there the end of history, and so on. To what degree do you think that's that's come to an end? 
and to what how much faith do you have in the possibility of a future that transcends capitalism well my first of all it's very easy now to imagine the end of the world in fact we're coming pretty close to it another couple of decades of uh, failure to deal with imminent problems it'll be not the end of the world but the end of organized human society on earth so that's very easy to imagine and what about capitalism well first of all what is capitalism now, the business world has never been willing to permit a capitalist society to exist and it's a suicide pact capitalist society can't exist it would destroy itself in no time so the whole history of what we call capitalism is one or another variety of state capitalism with the state managing doing playing a substantial role in managing controlling designing the system creating a particular form of market uh, intervening when necessary to maintain the system usually to maintain the power of the more powerful uh, our whole high-tech economy for example is based on massive government uh, research and development 50s and the 60s mit where i was was one great center of it government money pouring in the basis for the high-tech economy being created uh, to to put it in a slogan oversimplified but not totally false what's created is a system of public subsidy private profit called capitalism well you call it that if you want so what about the end of capitalism i think there certainly are possibilities of moving towards systems that are more under popular control that are less controlled by unaccountable private concentrations of power maybe they can be totally dissolved into a truly democratic society in which workplaces and communities are under popular control and some form of free association among them it's not going to happen in a day but i think there can be moves made towards those developments and in fact some kinds of moves towards that have to be made if we're going to survive at all because an unregulated capitalism is just a recipe for disaster Noam, thank you so much uh, for your insights, your wisdom, your clarity. Uh, it was a huge, huge honour, huge privilege. Thank you. Good to talk to you. I mean, come on, that was a pretty good interview. He was on very good form, as I promised at the beginning. Now, we've got an absolute tonne of interviews to come with a very, very broad range of people. Uh, but if you want to help us expand, because we're going to do a huge amount of content, uh, then donate whatever you can via the support function in the description of the podcast. But also you can become a regular subscriber to patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. You have a say over what we do if you do that. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please like this on iTunes. Uh, that helps boost the numbers of other people listening. And also just spread the word. Uh, but I look forward to chatting with you very, very soon.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 